You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. Good morning and welcome. In case I haven't met you yet, my name is Eric Colser. I serve as the pastor here at Gospel Collective Church. Again, glad that you're joining us in corporate worship, especially after uh, holiday week, Thanksgiving break. Uh, this is a, a Sunday where I know a lot of people are still traveling, a lot of people out of town or have family in town. Uh, again, appreciate you being here. Join us in corporate worship with this, um, especially as we start a new series. Um, if you are new visiting or maybe you've been here for a few weeks, but uh, you'd like to know a little bit more about our church, whether it be different ministries, community groups, uh, to even get to be the pastor and be able to talk with them about some things with our church. We'd love for you to be able to fill out this welcome card. Uh, should be in the seats right in front of you along with some pens. Uh, if you want to just uh, fill out name, phone, email, there are some specific boxes for what's your next step. Or if you have some specific things that you want to ask, you can put that down there. Also, we use these for prayer requests for our, our entire uh, congregation. Uh, our church staff meets together every Monday morning and before our meeting, we'll pray for each and every one of these, follow up with it accordingly. And so again, love for you to fill these out, uh, drop it off in the offering box, which is uh, each one of the exits when you leave. Uh, we'd love to get a hold of you, pray for you in any of those ways. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 38. Uh, we will be reading from Matthew 1 uh, momentarily as well, but Genesis 38 we're going to be mostly in. Uh, this morning we're starting a new series called The Women of Advent, and along with that we are also leading you in a practice of Advent. Uh, some of you may not know exactly what that is, what that means. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. Uh, it often refers to Christ's either first or second coming. And so as we anticipate a hopeful anticipation for Jesus's birth, the celebration of him coming into the world to save us as that Messiah, um, the church has through history um, and liturgical years had a designated period uh, leading up to that hopeful anticipation of his coming. And so uh, the four Sundays before Christmas, we want to help and encourage you um, in Jesus's arrival. Uh, and so in doing so, you'll hear a little bit more from Jacob about these things at the end, uh, but we do have a table in the back uh, that has some resources for you with this, um, a daily devotional uh, from C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, as many of you guys know, my personal hero in church history. And so uh, these are on sale for $3. I think there's only a few copies left. We will have more available uh, next week as well. There also is a QR code if you want to buy it yourselves. Ours is a little bit cheaper uh, than that. Uh, but there's also this available for families. Um, along with each one of the themes of Christ that we're going to hear testimony from, uh, that we're going to have some prayer uh, and light the candle with leading up to Christ, there's a family devotional that you can be able to. It's just a weekly, not a daily. Uh, but you can be able to, as a parent, lead your kids or lead your child uh, through each one of those themes yourself. And there's also some kid activities and some things with that as well. Uh, there is PDF uh, available, QR code with that, and then also some physical prints that we have available in the back as well. Along with that, we start this series, uh, Women of the Advent, and leading up to uh, the birth of Christ. This is based off of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. What a great way to anticipate through reading of the genealogy that probably most of you guys have skipped in your devotions, all right? You cannot skip it this morning. We are going to be reading it, um, although we are going to skip a couple verses, but we are going to be reading particularly the ones uh, of the characters we're studying over this next month. So read with me Matthew chapter 1, starting off with verse 1. This uh, is, again, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, specifically mentioning some women, which is unusual, and which I'll explain in just a moment here. Starting off with verse 1, God's word is read and says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's the first character we're going to study this morning, by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, there we go, by Rahab, that's the second person we're going to be studying next week, women of Advent, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, our third person, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. Many of you guys know her as Bathsheba, and we're going to study her in a few weeks here. And then skip the next couple verses, verse 16. Here comes Jesus Christ and also uh, the fifth woman that we will be studying, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So here's the thing. Even as often as maybe you've skipped the genealogy, knowing this is important, but uh, it's a bunch of names leading up to Jesus. Was it especially important, but yet unusual in this genealogy right here is the inclusion of these women right here. Know that women were not usually included, especially at this day and time, in these genealogies. Now you may ask, why? Well, at this time, in this culture, during this day and age, women were, first off, viewed upon as powerless. The genealogy was given by the male heir, and they were also viewed upon, in many ways, as social outcasts. In fact, hundreds of years, this was a perception, and still perception, many societies, many cultures today. So the inclusion of them in this genealogy was looked upon as pretty scandalous, not only because of perception of women at this time and age, but listen to this, because these women happen to be, not all of them, but most of them happen to be Gentiles as well. In fact, know this, remember this, Matthew is writing to his core audience, the Jews, and in the genealogy of the book that he is writing in the account of Jesus Christ to Jews, he is including women, Gentiles, grafted into the genealogy of their Messiah, Savior. That was viewed upon, looked upon as pretty scandalous at that time. In fact, Craig Keener, New Testament professor at Asbury, who has written commentaries over this book, has said this. Had Matthew merely meant to evoke the history of Israel in a general way, one would have expected him to have named the matriarchs of Israel, Sarah, Rebekah, Leah, and Rachel. Instead, he names four women whose primary common link is their Gentile ancestry. When Matthew cites these four women, he is probably reminding his readers that three ancestors of King David and the mother of King Solomon were Gentiles. The Bible that accepted David's mixed race also implied it for the Messianic king. Matthew thus declares that the Gentiles were never an afterthought in God's plan, but had been part of his work in history from 
the very beginning. These women and Gentiles who lived in a world where it was viewed as highly kind of unimportant, seemingly insignificant, yet all included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So let's start with this first woman mentioned in this genealogy, one we learned a tad bit about back in April when we went through the Gospel in Genesis, more the character of Judah, who we're going to read as well. But today we're going to read and study and apply the tough yet redeeming story of Tamar. Again, Genesis chapter 38. Also, before reading this, let me give a quick disclaimer as well. Um, I'm going to just read the scripture. Yes, I'm going to explain some of this story in the scripture. However, there is some of this chapter in scripture that may not be appropriate for kids or as parents and upon your discernment you think is not appropriate for kids. Again, I'm not going to be crude. I'm not going to be explaining anything bad. I'm just going to read the scripture, but want to give that disclaimer for some of you um, as well uh, before we read this. Because it's not probably one that is going to be read in kids' Sunday school class because I haven't seen the emails from parents yet, okay? But I'm going to read it because it's God's word, and this is what we are studying this morning. Chapter 38, starting off with the verse 1, God's word says this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adalamite whose name was Hirah. Quick context. Judah, if you don't remember from when we studied him in comparison to Joseph back in April when we studied the gospel in Genesis, Judah is a piece of work. And that's not a good thing. Okay? This is the guy, the brother of Joseph, who was originally named after his mom's praise to God, knowing her worth was found in God alone, yet he did not live out that name in the beginning of his life. He was the brother who led the charge to sell Joseph into slavery. And now we're going to see and read here him leaving his brothers to a place he shouldn't have been to marry a woman outside of his faith, the Canaanites, and making some really unwise decisions from there on. Verse 2, then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman whose of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, he took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Now here, verse 6, we're introduced to Tamar who marries one of Judah's sons. Verse 6, And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And that's that. <laughs> I mean, like, real quick, one verse right here. It was quick. Judah's newly married son, it says in God's word, was evil. And because of that evil, God put him to death. We know the ultimate consequence of sin is both spiritual and physical death. And so that is that. And now Tamar is a widow. And this is where things both get complicated and awkward. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Judah asks this of his other son, because in the Leverite marriage laws, it required that if a woman's husband died without offspring, having been produced, it was the duty of the brother 
the next born brother to bear a child by her in order to continue his dead brother's lineage. This custom was established as legislation included among the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. You can read it. It's also evidenced in the broader culture by its inclusion among Hittite laws at that time. And so this was his duty. This was what was commanded. This is what his father even asks of him. But as we see in the next few verses, Onan was disobedient to this law and his father. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Boom. Just like that. Two now dead sons to the father. Two dead husbands to Tamar, who is now a two-time widow, which, know this, is very dangerous at this time and in this culture. For to have no one, not only when it comes to lineage, but to protect, to provide, to be her husband. And what was asked by her dad in, in the Mosaic law should have been happening. And now Judah, on top of all this, is scared because he's running out of disobedient, sinful sons. I mean, they're dropping like flies, married to her, to no fault of her and no sin of her, because it says crystal clear in God's word, they were the ones that were evil and because of their sin, consequence being death. Verse 11 then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my, God, my son, grows up. Third son now. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So now he's saying, hey, third son that you're supposed to marry now have the lineage. You're rightful in the law. Inheritance of children passed down. But... Because the other sons are dying, he got fearful, got scared. So he said, it'll happen later, but just go to your father's house and remain a widow, as risky as that was at that time. But just remain there, and later on you can be able to marry who you should be marrying to have children with. Now here is where the story gets even more scandalous. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tamar to his sheep sharers, he and his wife Hirah, the Adalamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tamar to share his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Tamar, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So after two deadbeat husbands we have the third son now grown but not marrying her which was a broken promise from judah because judah isn't caring about what he should be caring about the future of his family what the mosaic law says all he knows in his mourning the death of his two other sons that was done by their very own sin but he is not fulfilling his promise which included tamar's rightful inheritance and role in the family her worth and dignity because of how risky it was even to be a widow at this time. And so we see Tamar is to suffer for it. It's really sad and it's not like what she's feeling is not what we feel and see today 
a tragic moral choice in what was an impossible situation. And now, not justifying it, but she's going to trick her father-in-law to get pregnant. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? Verse 17, he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, I don't know about you, you're reading this and you're like, this is the birth line of Jesus? Like, this is what's including in Matthew's genealogy for a purpose, for a reason? I mean, it is included there when Matthew probably knew this is not going to be widely accepted and praised here. I'm including women that are not Gentiles. I mean, you're reading this story. People are going to read this, go back, and like, huh, what's going on here? Yes, it is included, and for God's good reasons. What's also important here is that although it is still sinful, Tamar is not just trying to sleep with her father-in-law. She is being shrewd and astute in protecting her family and life here, asking for this pledge, the cord, the staff. Get more on that in a bit. Now, as we all know, we're going to read and see the next couple verses. God exposes what is done in the dark air by his light. And that's what happens to both of their sin, our sin too, as we read on in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend Adalamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enium at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. A little bit of cover up right here. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. But because everybody's going to know, they're going to laugh at us. Just let her keep it. But let's not worry about it. But here is where we see Judah's hypocrisy exposed. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Now what she says right here is significant because at least two other commentaries that I read parallels this to Judah's earlier hypocrisy and sin when lying about Joseph's death the chapter before. You guys remember this in the gospel in Genesis? Chapter 37, verse 32, in that verse, Joseph's brothers asked their father, please examine this bloody robe. Remember who led the charge in that? That was him. And so where they were like, dad, 
your favorite son, he is dead. When they sold him into slavery, he's dead. Look, a wild animal tore him up to pieces. Examine this bloody robe. One chapter later, Judas sin being exposed by his daughter-in-law saying, please examine the items I have from the one who impregnated me. Verse 25 here, Tamar asked Judah, please identify again. Some of your versions examine these things. Could it be that God allowed these words to come back to haunt Judah in his great sin against Tamar? Remember, church, sin is not only always a trap, but it's always going to be exposed and come out by God's light. In fact, remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 2 through 3. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, this next verse here is really important. It was heavily mentioned when I can recap this story when comparing Judah to Joseph in our Genesis series. But look what Judah says in response when his sin is exposed, when light exposing what was done in the darkness. Verse 26, Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. He takes full responsibility in showing and saying, not excusing, justifying her trickery, her sin in the situation, but says, I should have given her to my third son, like what was asked in Mosaic law, what was in the common culture. She is more righteous than I. As messy as this story is, that in spite of the sin, both Judah, which we talked about in April a little bit more, but now Tamar is commended. She is commended both by Judah here, but then God in the inclusion of her in his word and being used in the genealogy of Jesus. She's not only mentioned in Matthew, she's not only when Tamar, I'm sorry, not Tamar, but Judah owns up to his sin, but even in saying she's more righteous than I in this situation, I did not give her. But in another character we're going to study in a few weeks from now, included in the genealogy in Matthew, Ruth. She's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 12, when the elders are speaking to Boaz and compares Ruth to Tamar, saying, may your house be like the house of Perez, who is the son that's going to be born of Tamar, whom Tamar born to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. I mean, she is included in all of God's word and commended. Now, some would ask, why? Why should she be commended by God, by his word, by Judah, three things I want to point out here. Three reasons why she should be possibly commended. Number one is she was a suffering widow 
and social outcast. Tamar is a two-time widow because she married crappy, sinful men in which Scripture says their evil was punished by death from the Lord, leaving her and her family at risk to be disregarded and mistreated without the protection of a husband at that day and age. And church, as we should know by now, we know Jesus' heart for such. And Scripture's commands and commissions to the church and how we respond and regard them. She is a part of the Bible's quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. She is included with what is found in Acts 6, which they said, pause all our ministry right here, right now. We need to delegate some things out to make sure that these women are being ministered and taken care of, that these widows are to be protected. What is included in 1 Timothy 5, and the Apostle Paul's instructions to the elder who's going to be taking his place. Who's included in Matthew 3, 5, that we are to be protecting widows and orphans, providing for instead of oppressing. Why is she to be commended? Again, because she is in what the scriptures is clear about the church is to do and go above and beyond to help protect and provide for. And church, I think, that as a church, we can grow and do more. I do praise God for opportunities that we have, both within and outside. I know, just to be completely honest, I already communicated this with uh, uh, community group leaders, but even Thanksgiving outreach and Christmas to remember coming up, a majority of families are in this category of what we're going to be helping out. Again, praise God as we are too. I encourage in, in preparation for this, I can help think about three weeks back, even in our community group, somebody that's in this category that gave great praise and saying, you know, as long as I've been in this church for well over a decade, I've never felt, again, left out or felt like in this way. We are to go above and beyond to protect and provide the quartet of the vulnerable. Why else should she be commended? Number two, she was doing her best to protect her family and fulfill her family role. That in spite of the sin done against her and the sin that she chose, she was standing up for her rights, knowing the law and the Leverite marriage. She had not only those rights, and I know she went about it in an immoral way, but she was ultimately committed to that family line. And remember this, church family. The roles within a family, they are meant to be. Like what at heart she was trying to do be protected, to be cultivated, because they ultimately complement one another. And know this, church, when we break the family roles we have, we disrupt the design of God, and it will bring about harmful consequences. That is what she is doing here. She's doing her best, and like I said, an impossible, immoral situation to protect her family, fulfill her family role. Number three, and last of all, she was shrewd and astute in what was both an immoral and impossible situation. I believe she should be commended, just like Jesus told his disciples that they need to be wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves, when they were being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Just like what was brought up in a couple commentaries when I read about this, 
the parable of the shrewd or dishonest manager in Luke chapter 16, which have you guys ever put those together? Like dishonest manager, like that doesn't fit along with Jesus, but it is using wisdom, discernment to the best that one can in an impossible situation. And she is practicing that, doing that here more than the other characters. There is some of that in here. In fact, when listening to a sermon on this passage in Tur, um, Pastor Aaron Gray from a church in Seattle, Washington, called Tamar an anti-hero in this. So before Taylor Swift was singing about it, she not going to be a typical hero because it's impossible and moral. There was still sin involved. But at the same time, doing what she knew, called and what was given and to fulfill in her family role in which we have Jesus, in which even the father-in-law says, you are more righteous than I with this. Again, it's hard to use the word hero with all the sin involved, but out of everyone, she acted with the sharpest judgment and discernment to obey the laws of the Levite marriage, to bear the firstborn, which led to Jesus. I believe those three reasons is why she's commended by Judah, included in God's word by God. But church, know this, most importantly, she's commended because in spite of some of her good motives, there was still great sin both done by her and done to her. Yet what we should get out of this story and the story of Tamar is that God's great, great grace is so much greater than our sin. It's not hard to see that absolutely no one was righteous in this story. And we know this is true for us as it's revealed in God's word. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Yet that same word is used to describe Tamar from Judah in verse 26. And we know at heart it can only be found in Jesus Christ. He is the one who exchanges our unrighteousness for his righteousness. He is the one who came from this scandal, from the scoundrel Judah to graciously exchange our unrighteousness again for his righteousness. In fact, scripture really speaks on much of the themes from this story, from the consequences of sin that's done in the dark that cannot be hidden from God, exposed by his light, to God's grace and righteousness. In fact, read with me 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9 let this penetrate your hearts, sink in. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And some of you, you really needed to hear this today. This message that God's grace is far greater than our sin. In fact, when reading the story, you may even say, Wow, that's comparable to some of the messiness that's going on in my life, in my family's life. Some of you may say, it has nothing 
to do with my life or the things I'm going through. But for whatever reason, I'm feeling that burden. I'm feeling that weight. I'm feeling some of those consequences. And again, you need to hear and know that if you confess and repent, have saving faith in Jesus Christ who took care of such sin by dying on the cross, bearing it himself on the cross, which as we saw here, the consequence of sin is both spiritual, physical death. And so Jesus took that death upon himself. He rose from the grave, defeating it, having all power and authority over it. And as read in 1 John 1, if we confess and repent of our sin, have saving faith in Christ to restore. He takes care of it. For God to do that for Judah, to do that with Tamar, where she's now even honored and commended, and what she tried so hard to protect for her own life or her future family, comes the Messiah, shows us the hope that we anticipate in this Christmas season. His grace is greater than our messes and sin. That God incarnate on earth came down to reconcile us back to him in spite of us being disobedient, rebellious, to go against him. Again, out of this mess comes Jesus. In fact, we finally read that at the end of this chapter. Here comes now the son that's going to lead us to our Savior. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one, this is quite a story right here, these few couple verses. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, the one that was supposed to come out first, had his thread tied around his hand. He went in, the twin brother rushed ahead and came out. That's what it says here. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Even in this like obscure, miraculous, kind of really crazy story, it's, I feel like even the craziness of it is for them to know something special is coming out of here. Now, what that was, was again, Jesus. You know, I read this and I'm like, man, I thought my wife's like birth with the twins was crazy. One of them came out breach. That was something I've never ever seen before. That's way crazier than anything I experienced and saw. And from it is Jesus this extraordinary birth line and lineage. Warren Gage said about this, although Judah, rather than Joseph, is chosen by God as the ancestor of Christ, it is clear from Judah's conduct earlier in his life that God did not choose him because of his moral superiority. Can there be a greater, get this church, can there be a greater display of grace and mercy than the fact that the lineage of Christ continues with who was just born here, Perez. Can there be a greater display of grace and mercy than the fact that the lineage of Christ continues with Perez, who is the product of the illicit encounter between wicked Judah and scheming Tamar? I find it hard to say there's no greater example of grace and mercy. And to know 
that that same grace and mercy is offered to us in Jesus. Will you remember that at this time during this busy, crazy, at sometimes hard season? Will you be able to offer that grace and mercy to others as we anticipate Christ? And will you not forget that this genealogy with unexpected people is there for a reason? Sometimes we read the Bible thinking that all the Israelites, all the Christians mentioned, are the good guys, everyone else is the bad guy, and it is simply not true. There's only one good guy in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. And when you look at the names going back here, and you see a lot of imperfect people who've done some very stupid things to others, to God, you will also notice how God nonetheless used their heritage to bring about a perfect Savior. That the genealogy of Jesus shows it doesn't matter where you've come from, God wants to know you, loves you, and you can be born again into his family. And it's amazing to think, but how we come from such a long line of family who made plenty of mistakes, but a sovereign God who used those people to bring us into his beloved family. So again, next time you come across this, as we continue to read this great women of Advent, connecting them to ourselves and our anticipation of the Savior, maybe even take an extra few minutes to think about all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and how God uses imperfect people to bring about perfect, loving plans in your life and salvation for imperfect people. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for what you have given us in your word and the story of Tamar, how she was commended as a suffering widow, doing her best to protect her family, fulfill her family role, and even in moral and impossible situations, being shrewd and astute, and in spite of the sin done against her and sin that she chose, we see a message that we need, that your great, great grace is greater than our sin. Lord, that you used her in such powerful ways for your son to bring about that peace that we heard from with the Collins family and our lives, and most importantly, with you. We thank you, Lord, and I pray over this Christmas season as we study these women, as we do family devotions, as we personally reflect on what significance it is that you would come in this world to make a way for us to be a part of your family to be a part of this lineage we thank you Lord even as we sing as your family right now about your great grace that is greater than our sin we pray this in your name Jesus Jesus